Walk anywhere these days and you've likely nearly collided with someone because they, or you, were looking at a cell phone instead of their surroundings. Distraction from texting while driving has been shown to impair driving skills as much as drinking alcohol. Beyond driving, screen time in general is reshaping the way we interact with each other and spend our days. A major concern is how screen time affects developing minds. This certainly is a concern of mine as I have a daughter who just turned four. Anyone with a child has had to navigate screen time rules, but determining how much screen time kids can have, at what ages, and what forms of entertainment to allow can be challenging. Kids love screens and they certainly can be an enormous help on a long car trip or while you're writing a grant, but how much is too much? And what age is too young? In 2019, the World Health Organization provided guidelines that infants under one year old should not have any screen time, and those between two to four years should have less than one hour of sedentary screen time daily. The American Academy of Pediatrics, where my wife Terrell actually works, recommends children two to five years old only watch one hour per day of programming. Well, some days our daughter doesn't hold herself to that limit. What are the sorts of health and development issues that may arise with children and screen time, and how strong is the evidence base? Studies have indicated that screen time affects attention issues, language skills, and even memory. I'm your host, Brian James, Associate Professor at Rush Alzheimer's Disease Center, and this is Epidemiology Counts from the Society for Epidemiologic Research, a podcast that gives you up-to-date information on the state of health research straight from researchers who are deeply involved with this work. In each episode, we'll look at a particular disease or health condition or something that we are exposed to in our daily lives that may affect our health and bring you a look at what we currently know and what we don't know about each of these conditions or potential causes of disease. Today, we are delighted to be back for our 11th episode, and we're going to be talking about the impact of screen time on health. To do so, I'm joined by epidemiologist and associate professor Anna Pollack from George Mason University to lead a conversation on this topic. Welcome, Anna. Hi, glad to be here. Great, and we are joined by a guest whose work focuses on this topic. Anna, could you please introduce Dr. Radeski? Sure. Um, Dr. Jenny Radeski is an assistant professor of pediatrics at the University of Michigan. Her, her research focuses on digital media use and the parent-child relationship. She uses a combination of methods to understand how media use affects behavior, such as self-regulation problems in infants, as well as less parent-child interaction for adults with heavy mobile media use. Dr. Radeski, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. Great, so to start off, should we be concerned about screen time? So I think that uh, I wanna take a step back before we delve into the science here, just to think about the moment that we're at in our, in our history and in technologic innovation. Um, there has never been such rapid adoption of new technologies that are being fueled by venture capitalists to get out and get to scale as fast as possible and debug later. I mean, this is a really different uh, cultural moment than than just the introduction of the telephone uh, in the in the 20th century or the introduction of the color TV. Those new technologies took years to decades to get fully adopted by the U.S. population, whereas things like the internet or cell phones took only a matter of years, and things like Pokemon Go took only 19 days. So we are at a totally different scale of the rapid rate of how much technologies are changing in our everyday lives. Um, and that has relevance for two reasons. One is uh, parents that I've interviewed for my studies feel like they're in a state of whiplash, like they can't accommodate to the new technologies coming out. They feel behind their kids. Um, and then researchers can't keep up either. We don't have the methods or the pace of doing our studies, getting them grant funded, getting them published. It's just, we feel years behind as well. So when we talk about the idea of should we worry about screen time, I want to also just put this in the context of we feel a little worried because we're feeling a little bit um, off balance. You know, we've kind of been knocked off our, our feet a little bit by this tidal wave of technology, and that's naturally going to lead to some anxiety. So my message often is, um, if you feel worried or feel unsettled, think about ways that you can reshape your use of technology that's really meeting human values. 
not feeling, people feel anxious when they feel controlled by technology, what's called technologic determinism. So I want people to feel like they have some human determinism that, okay, we have all these new devices that are smart technologies in our households. How can I take control of them? How can I use them to connect with my kids and serve my family's needs without feeling like, oh my gosh, they've taken over. Um, that's not really a scientific argument. That's more of just a, you know, laying the foundation for why the anxiety exists in the mm -hmm. first place. Oh, that's really interesting. And I, I think that that resonates very much with me because, um, you know, as a brief anecdote, you know, I was just telling a fellow colleague here that we were going to be recording this episode on screen time. And uh, he said, well, oh my gosh, everyone knows that's bad for you. And I said, well, why? What, what, what's bad about it? And he had no idea what the actual outcomes were. This is, you know, a person who does epidemiologic research. So um, I just yeah. think that there is a um, almost a, a belief. It's almost like a belief system that this is bad for you, but it may be because the technology is so new and we're just scared of it. So that's why we're talking to you. Yeah. So we can actually discuss the evidence base here and the actual um, research that we have on, uh, you know, how is this bad for you? So I guess to, to start off, what well, you know, so Anna already asked, you know, should we be concerned? And um, maybe, I think you got a little into this, but, you know, is there one type of screen time that's worse than another? Or are they all the same? Or can we, can we isolate aspects of screen time that are actually bad for you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I think, you know, just to go to your point about your friend's response to the term screen time, and I've had the same exact thing from friends or family members who know I wrote the screen time guidelines from the AAP <laughs> saying, you know, texting me and being like, uh, I'm watching a basketball game. Is it okay if my six-month-old sees the screen? And I'll be like, of course, you're a happier woman when you watch basketball. You'll be a happier dad. Just mm -hmm. talk to your kid a little bit, you know, uh, uh, when you're when you're watching TV together. But don't have this overwhelming fear that there's this there's this risk or or toxic effect that's mm -hmm. that's going to come from a little bit of exposure. We really need to show kids how to integrate technology in healthy ways into our, our everyday experiences. So um, to get to the root of why the term screen time triggers this sense of like badness or guilt <laughs> amongst parents um, goes back to the fact that it's become a very commonplace term for describing uh, the way media use was measured in the era of TV and videos and DVDs and video games. So, so researchers would ask parents in a survey on a typical day, what's the amount of time that your child might spend watching TV or watching DVDs or playing video games? And that was easier for parents to estimate because you knew, oh, my kid watched Sesame Street this morning, that's an hour, and then they watched, you know, Blue's Clues this afternoon or whatever. And, and getting recall on TV programming was more accurate. It comes in these 30 minute or hour segments. Also, there was a limited number of children's programs that actually made it to TV. You had to pitch an idea, you had to get it produced that, you know, people knew how to code for the quality of the content uh, to see what's the difference between a child watching Sesame Street versus watching SpongeBob SquarePants. And that uh, is so different right now because anyone can post anything on YouTube nearly, you know, um, mm -hmm. kids are watching a lot of YouTube. They're watching a lot of streaming video that uh, is that I've read a lot of articles about just content overload that families mm -hmm. are feeling right now. So that makes it, I'll, I'll get to the, the nitty gritty of how we're trying to research and measure these mm -hmm. new forms of screen time. Right. Um, so the prior research before this whole mobile smartphone revolution came about in 2007, uh, most of the research was looking at correlations between um, the amount or duration of time kids spent watching TV or videos, and then the content of what they were watching and looking at associations with yeah, either uh, outcomes at the exact same time, so cross-sectional research, or outcomes a couple years later. Mm -hmm. um, and so there were many population-based studies suggesting that the more time kids spent in front of media, and uh, the more violent or aggressive or age inappropriate the content, mm -hmm. the worse children's outcomes were. And, and these outcomes were things like cognitive scores or executive functioning. That's like how you control impulses or organize your thoughts. Um, 
uh, higher ADHD risk, um, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder risk, or um, more difficulties with externalizing behavior. So that's like big reactions to things, um, being aggressive, having big tantrums. And uh, again, this is, this is what I consider to be kind of the traditional forms of media that we knew, okay, right after, there was this one like lovely experimental study that showed right after watching SpongeBob SquarePants, kids have worse executive functioning compared to after watching the same amount of time of Caillou or the same amount of time of <laughs> coloring with, with crayons. And Caillou is this slow paced, very pro-social PBS uh, cartoon. And Swan, SpongeBob SquarePants, if you've ever watched it, it's, it's frenetic, it's fantastical. It's like, how could a little preschooler's brain even just make sense of it? I, my brain doesn't even make sense of it when I watch it. So, so the theory was, is that when you watch a lot of like really fast paced, fantastical or even violent media, you have this cognitive load this like extra work your brain needs to do, you feel a little disorganized, and then immediately afterwards, kids couldn't perform on these tasks of planning and executive functioning as well. Um, and so this suggests, okay, there's these like immediate effects of your kid's brain is overloaded. <laughs> and then immediately after watching that show, they might act a little bit mis more disorganized. There's also, um, when kids watch their favorite characters like Power Rangers solving problems with violence, then maybe informally they're learning to, uh, to solve their own problems by, by hitting or kicking or other things. So those are the two direct effects that they've um, felt like were, were problems that were the bad side of media. And then there's the displacement. There were also studies showing the more TV is on in the household, the less we talk to our kids. And the less language kids hear, mm -hmm. the less they're going to develop their vocabularies or their reading abilities. So um, those were the two main things that people were worried about, direct effects as well as displacement effects in, in early childhood, especially. I'm not even talking about teens because they're a whole other ball of wax. Mm. Um, Jenny, the, that is so, so interesting. And I wanted to kind of circle back to a point you were making about the the displacement and adult mm -hmm. use of devices and things, because I think um, that's something that I think as a as a grown up um, is maybe the the less easy to to vilify or the it's it's more difficult, right? Because it's about us, and when we start mm -hmm. being a little bit more cognizant of of what we're doing and how that can maybe influence um, our own interactions and our our kids too. Um, I don't know. Can you speak a little about um, where the research is on uh, how parents' use of devices can impact kids, like you were mentioning about displacement. Yeah, yeah. and um, I was really um, inspired by the research looking at background TV and how when there's a TV on in the background and no one's watching it, parents and kids talk to each other less. And if they are playing or talking, they kind of aren't interacting as richly. You know, they kind of don't, uh, carry forth the conversations that back and forth serve and return interaction as long. So um, I wanted to study that with regard to how parents use mobile devices. Because now that we had these screens that we could take anywhere in our pockets, and they didn't only contain entertainment, like background TV was usually like, uh, you know, Oprah or Donahue or soap operas on in the background in a lot of these studies. Now it's your work email. It's your uh, social media, it's your social life, it's news of the world in your pocket. And so um, in 2013 is when I did my first study on this and I was pregnant with my second child. I remember going to all these fast food restaurants, doing observations um, to see, we, we basically wanted to do an ethnographic study. Like if we observe as if we were anthropologists, we just wanna be open to what is unfolding when parents and kids use technology during fast food meals. We chose fast food restaurants because it's really easy to do observations there. Um, it's ethical to observe strangers for research studies, as long as you don't take identifying information about them. Um, and we also promised that if anyone looked uncomfortable and felt like we were watching them, that we would stop. And that, that actually didn't happen. So, so it was a really interesting study to do where we 
I took field notes and just wrote down every little interaction that was happening between parents and kids, young kids. Uh, uh, and in about three quarters of the parents used a mobile device some, at some point during the meal. This was a small study. It was very kind of hypothesis generating. It wasn't mean to, to be giving an answer to this is what happens when parents use their mobile devices, but it was just the first look into like, how should we even study this question? Um, and we saw some pretty surprising things um, for the parents who were really, really absorbed in their mobile devices and looked like they kind of couldn't take their eyes off of the, their device. They got more annoyed with their kids. Their mm -hmm. kids sometimes acted up more to try to get their parents' attention. Right. Sometimes parents yelled and, and kicked their child or like shoved them away. It seemed like such a stressful time for parents. And I really, you know, the results of this study, they got so much news attention, again, because of this anxiety that our culture has about all these technologies. And I really wanted the blame not to be on the parents, but very much, what are all these new expectations of parents that were constantly connected to devices, these devices that are, that are actually designed to prolong our engagement? Because advertisers make more money the more seconds we look at our phones or the more things we click. So the whole business model of mobile and app-based technology is you want eyes on your product longer. And that didn't seem like a fair setup to parents who have to often have at least their eyes or their minds a little bit focused on their kids. I'm not saying parents need to be, you know, attuned to every little thing their child is doing all the time, but you have to kind of be trying to have a hunch about what, why is my child doing that? You know, like what is driving that? How can I help them not escalate this into something bigger? Reading child cues can be pretty challenging. And in the interviews I did to follow up that study, parents said, it is so hard to toggle and multitask between my work brain that's absorbed in my phone and my emotional brain that needs to be sensitive to my kids. Um, and so helping to achieve that kind of balance or at least some boundaries over when are you going to allow yourself some time to just single task on either your phone or just your kids um, and not have these competing demands for your attention uh, is kind of where I've taken my next few studies. My next few studies have really looked at, okay, yes, we talk less to our kids when we use our devices. Um, other researchers have looked at, you know, when when it, when devices interrupt our learning activities, kids don't learn as much from us, even if we, you know, say all the same words, just the fact that we're splitting our attention matters. Mm -hmm. And then over time, if we withdraw into our devices to escape parenting stresses, this actually can is associated with later worse child behavior. You know, if we're escaping from parenting stress, and it's again, displacing this time that actually we learn to cope or self-regulate with how it feels to be the parent of a young, crazy kid, and we're not helping our child learn in that moment, ah, here's what you're feeling. Here's how you can handle that feeling. That That's going to, I suspect, and we have a few studies suggesting that over time, that doesn't help. It actually can, you know, displace opportunities where we where we learn some of the tasks that are bigger, the biggest things that we need to challenge ourselves with as parents. Wow. So all this time we, we thought the problem was our kids on screens, yeah. <laughs> but you know, it's us as the parents on screens that, it, that could be the real problem. And, you know, full disclosure, I've definitely had one of those, um, at least one of those, um, you know, I learned it from watching you dad moments. Oh, of like, course. <laughs> like of the course. PSA on drugs from the eighties. Uh, um, you, you know, know my, uh, my 10-year-old, when he started reading Harry Potter, he would turn to me when I had my phone in my hand and would go, Expelliarmus! Oh, and I would like my. throw my phone away. You know, like the wow. kids are watching us, of course. Like they yeah. learn informally from yeah. just observing our role modeling. And that's not to say, oh, parents, you have to be perfect all the time. Right. But if they see you checking out from family stresses, mm -hmm. um, if they see you kind of skimming the news and not sitting down to really digest the heavy stuff that's going mm -hmm. on in our uh, country, if they see you um, kind of fubbing, you know, like phone snubbing, ignoring, mm -hmm. not pausing and like paying attention to the people around you, um, that's going to become a norm for them. Yeah. They internalize that and, and it, they'll be more likely to do it when they're, when they're older. So, so yeah, we do instead of feeling guilty about it, parents, mm -hmm. we can feel like this is an opportunity to model 
some some balance or at least to say out loud like sometimes i need to say to my kids like hold on i'm texting with my friend i just want to send her this thing you know i'll be there in a sec you can wait and at least at least they can kind of um understand my mental state Mm -hmm. as i'm doing something because right now when we look at each other looking into phones we have a blank facial expression and we can't see what's on the screen so it's very it's it's very opaque yeah. And so there's, there's a lot we can do to just make some of these issues more transparent to our kids. Right. But no one's teaching us as adults how to deal with these <laughs> no. devices either. So how are we supposed to teach our kids? And as you said, um, you know, these devices are designed to be addictive. And so we're really fighting against that design, um, which is pretty scary. So, yeah. It's, it's hard. And that's why I don't want there to be, I think we... Um, Parents do get a lot of blame in our culture, and it's probably because mm-hmm. we live in a very individualistic culture where we think like everyone's responsible for the well-being of their specific child. And, and in other cultures, it's a much more communal uh, approach to parenting, where you don't feel this sense of guilt or shame about one specific child having a having a problem. And I see that all the time in clinic. I'm a I'm a developmental behavioral pediatrician, mm-hmm. so when a child is showing delays or behavior problems parents feel such a heavy weight of what what have I done wrong? Um, when actually there's so many systemic and structural issues that feed into a child's wellness, including the design of their digital environment, you know? So I don't want parents to, to feel as guilty about that. Um, so when we're thinking about um, screen time, we've talked a little about the on the parent side of things. Um, The thing that jumped to mind when you were talking about all these different kind of avenues for screen time that didn't exist kind of when we were kids, it was Mm -hmm. Saturday morning cartoons in the living room and everyone knew when I was watching TV because there was two TVs in the whole house. Um, But now that kids have these other avenues, do you, what, where do you see the, the research and, and benefits and or risks with um, technology in the classroom and at home? Mm. Like, is there, should there be a, a limit at home or are, there's definitely benefits in the classroom? Uh, kind of where are we with that? Yeah, so um, I'll break that down into a couple things. So first starting in schools, uh, a school-based educational technology is a a major worrying point for a lot of parents I've talked to. Um, With the American Academy of Pediatrics, we're trying to encourage parents to feel very uh, proactive about talking to teachers and administrators and saying, what apps do you use? And how did you choose them? And how did you vet them? And what data do they collect about my child? Because the data that's collected from educational apps creates a really amazing psychological profile of that child. Are they a slow reader or a fast reader? Are they a critical thinker or not? Are they someone who gets in a lot of trouble behaviorally and their class dojo uh, app is recording how many times they got in trouble? This is really sensitive data about kids. And um, it's not clear that there's a a systematic way that that, um, schools are dealing and, and protecting the privacy of students and making sure they're not sold to third party companies for marketing purposes. So um, that's more of an advocacy issue. We don't have a lot of research on where that data actually goes if it is shared with third parties. And um, you know, that's, again, parents don't feel very empowered to ask about that because they don't understand the, those technical aspects of like, what is this data? Who are these third party companies? Why, why would they want the data? Um, so really I want, we, we want parents to just ask, have a conversation, put a little bit more pressure on schools to make sure that they're vetting things and they're protecting data. Um, number two, uh, but, but there is evidence that kids can learn from reading and math practice apps. So I don't want parents to be worried like, oh no, there shouldn't be screens in school, but it just needs to be time limited. So the kids need practice with other life skills that don't just involve reading or math facts. Um, They need collaborative work where they can adjust to the fact that they disagree with their peer and they have to find a way around a problem. They need some creative thinking time where they're not just following the commands of the app or program, right? Um, When thinking about um, how kids are using technology at home, uh, the research is really behind right now because we don't 
accurately know how to measure it. So one thing my lab has been doing is developing apps that we install on kids' devices that give us like a second-by-second -second readout of what they're doing, whether the device is on or off, and what app is running in the foreground. And this is only available for Android devices right now. Um, Apple does have a screen time API, and I've been bugging them quite a lot <laughs> to see if they would ever share it with researchers. But right now, Google, who create Android, they do have an open API. This is just something that measures what the device is doing. We have an app that collects data from it. It's taken a lot of work to figure out how to analyze those reams and reams of data from kids' devices, but it's pretty interesting. We have our first manuscript based off this under review right now, and kids basically, these are preschoolers, preschool age kids, three and four, they watch a lot of YouTube. <laughs> that's, that's mostly what they're doing. Mm -hmm. A lot of YouTube, a lot of games like Subway Surfers or like Children's Dent Doctor Dentist, like all these little gamey apps that have ads and in-app purchases and other things. Very, very different design than like what I was talking about before. Like, are you watching SpongeBob or are you watching Sesame Street? This is, there's, there's just so much content, so much monetization of children's play. So we're finding apps that you know, the characters prompt kids to make in-app purchases, like strawberry shortcake will say, oh, gee, will you make the cake with the blue dye? But the blue dye is locked and you have to pay for it. Should be it. illegal, by the and way. And then she acts disappointed if you yeah. don't make that cake. You know, we've seen um, Barbie apps where she's like, oh, I sure love those sparkly shoes, but they're locked. Uh -huh. We see apps where, you know, pop-up ads are kind of jumping up into kids' faces and won't you can't, you know, unclick it with this tiny little X in the corner that's like impossible for a little finger to click, you know. So there are some manipulative design practices that we have, um, you know, identified that I feel like are common practice in adult ads, I mean, adult apps, but these are kids, you know, kids have different minds. We need to design differently for them. And so I've really tried to advocate with the American Academy of Pediatrics for just more child-centered design and some guardrails on, you know, what can go into children's technology and what data can be collected from it. Wow. So this is, there's a lot to parse out here. And yeah. I can see now why, uh, you know, no one has any idea if or why screen time is bad. <laughs> we don't even know, first of all, what we're measuring. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, like, as you said, the amount of time is one issue. That's, that's a screen time as a phrase boils it down to that. But as you said, that's just so, that's just scratching the, surface of the iceberg and you know the content matters but again that was all designed back in the day when we were just looking at tv shows but now you're actually interacting with devices and you've got this issue of you know passive watching versus actively doing things yeah um you've got the uh you know what you're being exposed to when you're actually uh, on these devices and then you know you also brought up and we talked a lot about you know the, what you're not doing while you're on the devices yep. so um you know the attention that you're losing towards you know giving that towards your family or friends um or not playing sports or whatever mm -hmm. so how the heck are we supposed to isolate you know what it is about these devices about television about all of this mm. that is bad for you and then we haven't even gotten to we will soon what are what is bad? <laughs> you know, what, what right. are the actual health effects of some of these things? So I know that was well, a really long-winded question, but no, but it's complex. It's complicated, yeah. right? And it, it's really hard to distill into just a soundbite mm -hmm. that is going to uh, make sense for every individual family and every individual child. I think one thing that is um, a real limitation of the research so far is that we we act as if this exposure, you know, to screen time or to digital media use uh, has equal effects in every child, mm. right? So if you're doing an epidemiologic study and you say, what is the exposure and what is the outcome? And they've seen, you know, small but significant links, but, you know, small effect sizes. That means, you know, uh, of all the things that influence a child's mental health, um, their, their social media use or their screen media use is just a small, small percentage of all the other things that, that affect their mental health. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there have been links in studies between uh, children's screen time or their media use and their sleep duration and quality. There's been man, many, many studies showing links between 
screen media use and obesity, but it's not a one size fits all phenomenon. I'm a, as I said, I'm a developmental behavioral pediatrician. So every child that comes into my clinic has a totally different wiring. And so knowing, I know there are some kids who are probably a little bit more vulnerable to developing problematic relationships with media use at, you know, they've been infants who've always been fussy, have always been hard to parent, to get down to sleep. Um, they have big reactions that really stress out their parents. And so I'd like the, fo the research to focus a little bit more on uh, what we term differential susceptibility or individual um, traits that influence how we develop relationships with media. So that's one thing. That's one thing I'm doing in a longitudinal study right now. Are these fussier, more difficult kids more likely to use more media and to for that to displace more of the good stuff that they need. They need exercise, they need sleep, they need time with their parents to have conversations to manage big feelings. Um, the second thing that is, um, and I think that's, that's recognized. So like um, there was just New York Times coverage of a, a large meta-analysis, a research review of adolescent me mental health in the digital age by um, Candace Odgers and um, Michaeline Jensen. And they really, at the end, they, they really distill some of the issues we have in the research. One is there are kids with vulnerable vulnerabilities, and we need to think about that when we're studying this. Um, we need to think... Um, not just how much kids are using media, but how are they using media? Gosh, that's so hard to measure. You know, when I sit and look at the news, um, or I'm not on a lot of social media anymore, <laughs> but I, you know, if I look at Twitter, if I'm on Twitter, sometimes I look at Twitter and it's like, you know, makes me really happy. I see something funny. I see something my sister posted. Sometimes it stresses me out. So I can't even use a measure like, Dr. Rudeski's Twitter usage per day, like I don't even know what that's going to mean on a day-to-day -day basis. So we need to actually also be measuring what was your emotional reaction to media in that moment. Um, and finally, we need to consider the contextual issues of the family. How is the parent-child relationship? What other stresses are the family dealing with? And that's, that's being better addressed in a lot of the research, but I think that's why people feel um, they really criticize the screen time research because they say all of these correlations could be explained by other stresses the families are facing. Um, right. So just to just to, to sum up, though, I think you had a a complicated question. I just gave you a really complicated answer, <laughs> and I would say all of this sounds so complicated. If I were a parent listening right now, I might be like, "So what do I do?" <laughs> right. The truth is, okay, our our media research. Our screen time research is behind. However, we know tons about child development. That hasn't changed. We know a lot about the fact that ki what kids need in the early years or in the teen years to support you know, healthy development. And so if you can focus on that instead, like I wanna work on getting my child enough sleep and not needing an external calming source like a screen to get them to bed. I want my child to learn how to handle big emotions and maybe we'll get a therapist. Maybe I'll talk to the teacher about it. Um, if you can focus on, I want my child to be a bit more imaginative and not such a, a rigid or stuck thinker. Uh, we're gonna work on you know, more imaginative play where he goes outside and pretends he's a pirate or something that you know, it, it's really thinking about each individual child's needs and um, and using that as a launching point and then creating a, some barriers about where you want media to come in to either support those goals or to say, actually, when he spends three hours on video games on Saturday mornings, we just don't have as great of a day. And I'm gonna, maybe we change that up and, and we do something else. And for another kid, those three hours of video games might be a nothing to them. It might, you know, it might be actually a way that they have fun with their sibling. Mm -hmm. So I want parents to trust their gut and their intuition a little bit more and, and take, um, take their goals and values as the guiding point here. I think that's such a great reminder. Um, as, as you know, people are hearing that, you know, the research is lagging behind on, on a lot of these different constructs and how to measure um, screen time and sort of to remember, but in terms of parenting and kids, like we actually know what they 
what they need in general. Um, I was wondering, you mentioned some of the, the health effects, and I, I was wondering if we could kind of drill down a little bit more, like, where is the research most certain that, mm. like, mm -hmm. this really could be, uh, you know, using a phone, looking at screens really could be a problem, and where are we, you know, the jury's still out, if yeah. you will. I think the consensus is strongest around sleep and obesity. So um, sleep, uh, there have been several studies showing associations between more media use and less sleep. And it's, it's really kind of hard to do um, experimental work in this area where we say, okay, everybody decrease your tech use and we'll see if you sleep better. People have tried it, you know, there's a, um, there was a study from Dimitri Christakis uh, like 10 years ago showing that if you just change the content of what preschoolers watch, that uh, you change them from Power Rangers type of violent, you know, fantastical violence to a more pro-social content that might, might be more like PBS Kids or Blue's Clues, that their behavior gets better. So it's, it's um, that's, that's the most um, causal proof that we have that if you change up the media use, you can change some of these behavioral or health outcomes. We need more of that right now. And so I know some studies are underway, like helping parents decrease um, nighttime media use and see if, if kids sleep better. Uh, but that's, so that's one area is sleep is I feel like there's a lot of just common sense consensus of, yeah, get the, get technology out of the bedrooms because it's designed to want you to keep coming back again and again. It's full of all your friends and all this exciting stuff. You know, how could you resist if you were a kid? Uh, and For parents, sure. parents too. I mean, there's research showing that parents check their phones a lot overnight and they use their phones as an alarm. So it's hard to, uh, to plug it in in another room and go back to an old fashioned alarm clock. Right. And it's the first thing you look at when you wake up. It totally is. Yes. <laughs> and um, uh, then so as far as obesity, um, the, when we reviewed the research for the AAP guidelines in 2016, you know, starting even in infancy and the toddler years, every hour per week of screen media use was associated with a slightly um, but significant increased risk of obesity. And it's really just due to two things. Sedentary behaviors is that, you know, when you're watching TV, you're not up and around walking, but also that um, you're exposed to more advertising on TV for delicious, high sugar, you know, high calorie dense foods. Uh, so the things that have been more contentious are the areas of uh, child mental wellness uh, and well-being, and um, things like anxiety, depression, suicidality. Uh, so I think the consensus amongst researchers is yes, there are some kids who are really vulnerable in these areas and there's an interactive effect. They're already depressed or anxious and then the media on top of that sometimes doesn't help. It sometimes does help. I mean, kids can reach out and get resources or find connections um, through digital media, but sometimes it becomes a little bit of a toxic uh, experience for them either socially or to what they're, what they're reading or exposed to. So. I, um, we need better research to kind of understand who are those kids and what can we do for them to kind of reset and establish a little bit more healthy boundaries with tech. Yeah, wow, that's really, that's really interesting. And actually, um, going back to the New York Times article that you mentioned recently, um, one of the things that jumped out at me that I thought was fascinating is that they were saying, you know, the researchers, are, some researchers are arguing that it could be that this rise in depression actually led teenagers to to using the phone more rather than the other way around. Yeah. Um, so we've got this reverse causality issue. And what was really interesting is that um, anxiety and suicide rates appear to not have risen in Europe where phones have also become more prevalent. So that's, you know, yeah. that, that stood out to me as like, whoa, that's pretty good evidence that this may not be, you know, in the direction we think this, this causal arrow is going. Yes. So it could be reverse causality. It can also be interactivity also right that sure. there's something about that kind of cascade of interactions between you and your interactive media that can on a day-to-day -day basis or over years um, influence your mental health trajectory in a positive or a negative way right. um, and uh, I think that there's also 
a, uh, you know, back to that idea of that worry and that panic of like, oh, there's all this new stuff. This must be the, the one singular explanatory factor. We got to get the phones away. So it's, uh, I think that's what, what people are uh, reacting to, like in that New York Times article, is that if, if you just take the phone away and you don't address all the other underlying either mental health issues, family dynamic issues, um, school quality issues, the lack of you know, access to mental health care, the other toxic stuff that's happening in our culture or over the, that, that is partly being conveyed over the internet, that you're, you, it's too simplistic of, a, of an intervention and it's not actually gonna help that child in the long run learn a healthier relationship with their media. That's a, that's a great point. Um, that kind of uh, made me think back to uh, these photographs that were circulating um, on social media a few years back by, I think it was Eric Pickersgill, who photoshopped out tablets and phones from people's interactions. Um, and so I feel like in what you were saying, that's kind of, you know, if we just get rid of the phone, but don't address There's how a void. Do we interact together, yes. <laughs> yeah, then that could be an issue. And, I, and I'm not saying the phone use doesn't need to be modified because like I said, when we have a, a business model that's running all of these online platforms um, and technology that really wants us to stay engaged, even if it's not in our best interest, it's in their best interest, um, that's a problem too. And so I kind of want families and parents to resist that a bit and to kind of say, you know, oh, why did I just jump into that rabbit hole for 45 minutes when actually I just wanted to go and, you know, message my sister or my friend and get a little social support in the moment, but I kind of couldn't disengage. Um, so uh, that that's one thing is that I want the design of the tech environment to change so that we can actually, you know, as um, uh, I wrote in an editorial for The Hill, um, there's really so much more impact you can make by changing the design of the environment so that default behaviors are the healthy behaviors. You know, you can take trans fats out of all of the food in New York City, or you can have each individual person be counseled by each individual doctor on how to remove trans fats from their diet, right? So if we could take some of the really sticky designs that like keep us glued to devices out, or at least make some of the design choices more transparent to users, then I think that may that's that's one area we could help. Number two is if we don't address the underlying parent stresses that parents are having, uh, then we have to give them some alternate activity to do. I, if I say put your phone away and you're sitting there stressed out about your your parenting experience, I want to have other resources, other ideas of like how you can play, how you can work uh, with a therapist, how you can work through your own meditation or your own self-care, right? So, so some of the intervention development I'm working on right now is maybe embedding uh, media use change within a home visiting model or within a, a model that already is promoting some of those self-care and play activities. I'm also working with the toy company, Melissa and Doug, to give parents other play ideas because like we're all exhausted, right? We all have like... <laughs> Where like brain is out of ideas. And if I don't have some other tips to be like, hey, it's a it's a snowy day, your kids are bonkers, like here's like five things you could do right now to try to engage with them that don't necessarily have to involve a screen. And um, or if they do involve a screen, here's how better to just like make it work and you know let find ways for them to disengage and go do other things. Uh, so, so that's, uh, that's part of it. And then there's also just um, getting more precise research. Like I like the precision medicine model that like if you really know who's this patient or participant, what are all their characteristics and how does that interact with all of their media use behaviors, we're gonna have more precise guidelines uh, for families. That's gonna take years. And so I don't wanna families to feel like they're waiting for years to know what to do when there there's this urgency right now that feels like you know do i get my kid a tablet or not everyone else is should i you know what's what how do i reason through these sort of parenting conundrums 
Um, Jenny, I love that you made that connection to the trans fat issue. And to me, that just really brought this uh, up to like the public health space so effectively. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, in thinking about, yes, each individual now has to make their own choice about how to limit that screen time. In, in your work on um, trying to nudge changes in the design issues to make, um, you know, the endless feed less have an end somewhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, that is that really um, going to be at a legislative level? Um, and is that something that, you know, we as researchers or we just as the general public should be thinking about as a way to sort of, hey, let's have there be a pause after yeah. 30 minutes or something. Yeah. Imagine and then you if, have to go back in. Yeah. Imagine if YouTube like gave you a nudge off after 30 minutes and been like, Hey, you've been here a while. What do you, what do you want to do? Right. So Netflix there's a, does that. Yes. You, you mean instead of wrestling the remote control yeah. out of my child's hands? Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> that, that countdown, that autoplay countdown makes my kids into instant maniacs. Yes. Like, the next one's coming. Yeah, right. I have to watch it. And I'm like, no, no, you don't No, there's, there's more time tomorrow, but I, um, yeah, so part of it is design tweaks, right? Like how, it was so easy for YouTube to create an on-off toggle right there up top that you can turn off autoplay. I mean, that that's a really easy user interface design change. Wait, and wait, it, I'm sorry. That yeah. exists already? That exists. That exists. <laughs> Dr. But Rusty. they made it hard for you to see. That's the I'm thing. sorry, clearly it's not that obvious. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, so does it work on the TV? Because our issue is oh. like the television yeah. has YouTube and I, yeah. Yeah. Um, that might Keep be going with this defines. wisdom. I really appreciate it. <laughs> um, so right now it is mostly industry self-regulation mm. because there is no, other than COPPA, which is the Child Online Privacy Protection Act, there is no um, systematic national legislation about privacy or tech design right now. And the Federal Trade Commission is in charge of regulating all of um, the kind of uh, oversights or, or problems that like Facebook had with the Cambridge Analytica scandal or that the recent filing against YouTube for the fact that so many children were watching YouTube, the main site, and their data was being collected as if they were adult viewers. So the, the Federal Trade Commission has, has, has done a few of these like um, uh, these kind of fines and um, asking for design changes against some of the big actors, but there's not kind of a broad sense of regulation against, I mean, how many app developers do you think there are? Right. There's like tens of thousands, if not millions. If you yeah. go to the app store, to Google Play, and you put in animal hair salon, <laughs> you get nine pages of results. Mm -hmm. Because there's so many different ones and they copy and paste each other's code and they just want to scale up so they get more downloads and that's how they get more um, revenue either from ad viewing or from data collection. So um, part of the uh, regulations here could be at the app store level. So I've talked with folks at Google Play about like how can you make, at least for kids, that design for families section a little bit more of the safe walled garden so that you know that all the apps in there are not tracking location. So they did put those regulations into place last summer. Um, you know, could you check to make sure they don't have data trackers or other collectors to share with third party companies? Could you make sure they're not full of ads that are for things like alcohol or shooter games or other inappropriate ads that we've seen in some of our studies. Um, so that's the industry self-regulating. There's also been changes like Instagram hiding likes for other people that they've been rolling out recently. Mm -hmm. There's been, um, you know, Instagram telling you that you've gotten to the end of your feed. So those are, those are some changes. They've a lot been pressured, um, in part by the Center for Humane Technology, which is a group of ex-tech uh, ex engineers who now uh, are advocating for more regulation and more ethical design on the part of industry. Um, but it's not, a, um, it, it's not happening in, in broad enough ways, I think right now. And it's, uh, you know, I've been, I've talked to some folks in industry who are like, why should we change anything? Right, <laughs> like we're making money. That's right. You're gonna... <clears throat> so 
I'm not really sure we have an incentive until there are regulations. Um, California just enacted the first state level privacy regulations um, to give people control over how their cookies are used and other how other data is used. And I think there's an expectation that the federal government will take on some more national privacy or tech design legislation, like Senator Markey has uh, introduced a few bills um, that are about child tech design, but nothing's happening right now because there's the impeachment. So we will uh, we'll kind of see uh, if with the next, um, you know, couple of months or years, whether some of this progress is made on the regulatory level. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I mean, it, it's one thing to impose, impose regulations, but you're, you're specifically telling the app designers to regulate it in a way so that they are, so that you're not using their app anymore, you know, um, yes. you know, to limit the time that you're actually access, accessing their app, which is what makes the money. So, uh, but I, I think, what you touched on actually is is a theme that come has come up in almost every podcast that we've done so far, which is this idea of regulation at the population level or the, um, you know, rather than this idea of imposing uh, individual limits, which can be really, really difficult to do in the cascade of, uh, you know, all of the pressures to, again, these devices are designed to be addictive. So telling a, an adult is one is hard enough, but then telling a kid, you know, you need to limit your time on that. It's oh. just, it's almost an impossibility, right? Right. Kids, kids are, um, they have weaker impulse control than mm -hmm. us. They're not as critical thinkers. They are more magical thinkers. You know, they take things at face value. When I've played some of the apps in my studies with my kids, like my, my son, when he was eight, he was like, look, I'm so good at this game. I'm getting all these coins and candy. And I was like, those aren't real. <laughs> Those are just tokens that are built into the game. But he had this idea of like, oh, like this is this this means something. Like I'm so glad I'm making all this progress. So yeah. so kids really take a lot of uh, technology stuff at face value. Um, they're more susceptible to those rewards. You know, it's why we use rewards and sticker charts for toileting and and other behavioral modifications. So I do worry that kids are more susceptible to a lot of the persuasive design techniques that are meant to engage users for longer and longer. And that, that makes it harder for parents to transition their kids off of technology and without a tantrum or without a big argument. So I, you know, my, my advocacy has been around, can you please tech companies make life a little bit easier for parents and not have them be as uh, battling over engagement promoting design technologies that their kids are using. I will say though, there are definitely great products out there that parents can look to for like PBS Kids is, is a nonprofit organization. It's publicly funded and therefore they've hired really good people who care about that the, the tech is designed to really meet kids where they are. They really respect the way kids learn. They don't collect data. They don't have ads. Um, they have been proven, many of their apps have been proven to actually improve children's like language outcomes or other things. So, so that is another message I often give to parents is like use the good stuff and um, avoid the stuff that feels iffy to you. Like if I've heard lots of parents in clinic lately saying, uh, I'm, we're done with YouTube. <laughs> like too many creepy things have come up in yeah. our feed. Um, and so I say, yeah, like stick with PBS stick with you know developers that have um child psychologists on their staff and really understand the way kids need to interact with media but then also need to to disengage mr rogers said you know that tv is the only appliance in your household that is more useful after you've turned it off <laughs> so you you learn something from media and then you go apply it to the world around you and that's exactly like a good a person who really crafts media the right way for kids is going to respect that, that they need to turn it off and they need to go apply it to the world around them. Um, I, I think that's, <laughs> that's such a, a great reminder. Um, and I was, I was curious, um, kind of, um, you mentioned PBS as a, as a great resource. Are there, um, are there other things that are kind of easy go-tos for parents who want to limit their own time or their kids' time or those sorts of like, okay, you've, you've recognized this as something you may want to 
keep track of or use mm. a bit less, um, kind of in terms of the toolbox of for other folks. Okay, so there's been no uh, no studies looking to see if any of these built-in timers or filters or reminders can actually change user behavior. Uh, so I've talked with folks like from uh, Comcast or Xfinity who've created the Wi-Fi that you can turn off at certain times of night. That, so you can really put these like controls on your household. Like well, no one can use the Wi-Fi after 8 p.m. because I'm just going to turn it off. And if that's something that would work for your household, then then it's worth a try. Again, there's no evidence that I know uh, that, it, that it has sustained effects. Um, number two, you can you can use your own screen time readouts uh, or your, the Google Wellness app is now on uh, the most recent versions of their phones to say like, hmm, what am I spending the most time on? Do I really want to spend that time? Look at the apps you have on your phone and say, which ones of these make me feel really good? And which ones like kind of stress me out and are just don't feel like they're worth my time. I get stuck in a rabbit hole. Try uninstalling those those ones that maybe are like the most, you know, sticky and attention sucking and uh, see how that feels for a week. Um, I think uh, there's, there's worry that if parents are the ones doing all the controls and restriction, that children themselves won't learn how to self-regulate their media use. This varies by age. So if you're a parent of an infant or toddler or preschooler, yes, you need to be the ones making the controls. You, the same way you have any structure to your day, this is the time that we usually have breakfast. This is the time we usually have lunch. We make our beds. We Any of those kind of rules and expectations in your household, same thing goes with media that kids will internalize those rules, but explain the reasons why. You know, we don't watch that stuff because you know, it makes us all cranky or it's too violent or um, we like Skyping with grandma and papa on, you know, the on weekends because it's how we stay up to date with them. We like using this app to like identify birds when we go out on walks. Like, right. So you're, you can also model more um, educational or constructive uses of, of technology that aren't just we're all going to sit and watch YouTube. <laughs> um and co-viewing and social viewing is really, really important. So you can help deconstruct the messages that kids are hearing in media uh, and, and really help them unpack whether they don't like the way a character is being represented or treated or uh, even just what they think of watching Moana or watching you know, something else that carries some, some heavy messages. Uh, and then as they get a little bit older, you know, talk about rules like, okay, uh, my family just got an old school Nintendo system for our kids, um, like the ones I played in the 80s. And I'm like, I don't know if this is a bad idea or a good one, but we're just going to try it out. And Great. I kind of said to my 10 year old, like, what do you think the time limits should be? And why, you know, and why? And he was like, I think... Um, I think on the weekends, like an hour would be good because I don't want it to get in the way of me hanging out with my best friend and I want to do this. And I, went, and I was like, oh, okay. That's, <laughs> I'm doing that's a good that. job here. I mean, of course, like <laughs> I talk about tech all the time with my kids. So I can't, you know, other parents may try that and the kid may be like five hours a day. And, <laughs> but that's part of collaborative problem solving with your kids is that you come up with shared rules that you both can agree on and the kids have more motivations to stick with them. And sometimes you need to have like other natural consequences. Like, okay, kids, if you guys are gonna throw a tantrum and like yell at me when I tell you to turn off the video game system, then you don't get the same time tomorrow because you're showing me that you don't know how to turn it off and how to transition off of it. That's all of us as grownups are gonna need to know when to turn our tech off. And so that's, uh, you know, those are some of the built-in learning moments that I want parents to to be kind of communicating with kids about from the early years because kids we want to keep some open lines of communication so that when kids are teenagers and they're seeing creepy stuff or there's bullying or sexting or you know mm. or they or they just see political messages online that they're not sure about you want there to be communication so they can open up to you and and talk it through just like any stress that they might go through yeah, I find this uh, so fascinating that um, in talking to you, it, you know, 
half, at least half of what we talked about is really about child psychology and parental yes. psychology, right. as opposed to, you know, the, uh, the exposure of quote unquote screen time. Um, you know, I find, I want, I mean, it's different than some of the podcasts we've had, you know, we're not just talking about the exposure. Uh, you know, I wonder if, do you think that research can be conducted without an eye to, to that psychological aspect, you know, and just treated as an exposure. It seems, it seems like mm. I would, it seems like you can't do that, right? Because then you won't even know what you're measuring or why. I think that's a really great point. And it's actually one, uh, as I was developing my approach to studying media when I was in fellowship, I knew that there was this narrative of using, uh, of um, examining media kind of as a risk factor or as an exposure. And I actually wanted to avoid that because mm -hmm. I kind of felt like that risk factor narrative wasn't working with families. Like it didn't resonate with them because media is fun and media is part really integrated in their lives in much more complex ways than that. And, and I mean, th so there's, I wanted the, the, the way of measuring it and conceptualizing it to be a bit more nuanced than that. And it's also um, because of the ways that modern media really is designed to interact so much with psychology, with the user's preferences and habits and subconscious kind of drives that we, we needed to have a really psychological um, lens on this. And then because I was studying this in early childhood, I wanted to have a parent-child relationship lens. Like my, my clinical training is very much on parent-child relational interventions. Uh, it's not, you don't just work on the child and you don't just work on the parent. You have to kind of see the dyad there. So um, I kind of intentionally have set up a, you know, what I wrote in my, in my grants. That's like my conceptual framework is that this is very, very much dependent on the child psychology, the parent psychology, their interaction relationship, as well as their psychosocial context. And um, that is what I hear from most of the leading media researchers is that they see it in this very multi-layered way. Who is the child? Who's the family? What are the other contextual issues? What is the content and how is that content interacting with the child? So um, I think that, uh, I get, I honestly get a little, even though my, my very first training in research was all epidemiology. I was at Harvard Medical School and I, I worked with a longitudinal cohort study called Project Viva. We were using food frequency questionnaires and like it was a great um, training on measurement and following health over time. But I've, I've since then started to have a lot of fun learning other disciplines methods. So it might be the discipline of psychologists. It might be the human computer interaction researchers here at Michigan who I like want to know what, how they conceptualize this too. And I, I feel like that um, interdisciplinarity helps to lead to kind of richer studies, but it's also um, never going to be as, as simple as decrease your screen time. Yeah, I think, um, as you mentioned with Project Viva, that um, that thinking about the the research that characterizes screen time, more screen time, yes, is bad, or what what have you, is like if ep epidemiologists were looking at nutrition measured food in pounds, and they were like, ah, more pounds of food, bad, yeah, or something. You know, exactly. it's very elementary, and so it really makes a lot of sense that you bring in these other contexts um, yes. to this yes. question. And that's not to say that those really well-designed longitudinal studies don't have a place for a screen time measurement, but I think that part of the problems have been with research so far is that either the studies that um, have amazing like psychological and parent-child relationship measures don't usually measure anything about screen media use. I once went up to Clancy Blair, who's like a child developmental psychologist and studies executive function at a, after a talk he gave. And I was like, do you have any media measures in your, in your data set? Can I, can I analyze it? And, and they didn't have any. And then we've also talked with like folks from ECHO or other longitudinal, you know, environmental exposure studies that have amazing measures, uh, but not a lot in terms of media. And if you have a, 
if you have space for one question in your study, it's probably going to be screen time. And that's why I've been working on other measures like, can we just install an app on your phone and like do this unobtrusive, low participant burden, you know, isn't going to take a lot of extra time, but is going to give us really rich data about what you're doing rather than having just one screen time question. Yeah, that well, that was good. But then you wouldn't be getting it. The video games are watching, the television. Oh, so well, you yeah, to, you got it. You got it. It's, right? It's, it's so hard now that we're yeah. all, you know, we don't, we're not measuring Alexa or like, Alexa, oh, I right? shouldn't have said that out loud because uh, if everything's going to go podcast, off. everything's going to go off. Um, <laughs> they're not listening to, you know, we don't know their smartwatches. We right. don't know their smart TVs. You're right. I mean, right. We, um, we've been working mostly on mobile uh devices like tablets mm -hmm. because that's a lot of what kids are using right but yeah. yes we need to complement it with other measures that really get at all the the whole media environment speaking of media time running too long um i think we may be over time on this podcast so i think we're gonna wrap it up here and i'd like to thank anna for leading this conversation and dr Odesky for joining us in this episode before we go if you are an epidemiologist, I strongly recommend you consider becoming a member of the Society for Epidemiologic Research. Membership gets you a discounted fee for the annual meeting, which is coming up in June this year in Boston. It also gets you access to the SER Library, which gives you uh, access to some great learning materials, seminars, and activities. Find out more at epiresearch.org. We really appreciate you listening. We'll be back with another episode soon.